Have you heard of ModestDirect.com yet? If not, let me to be the first to tell you about this modest, stylish, and affordable clothing line. Modest Direct is an online boutique created with you in mind. They want all their customers to feel confident, stylish, and modest, all while saving money in the process because it's doable. You can look all of these different ways without having to break the bank every time you go to a store or you go to an online boutique. This one's unique because they care about you. That's the reason why they have a five-star Google business rating. That's the reason why in the last four years, that's how they've achieved it within that time. Five stars on Google. This business cares about their customers. They have a pledge to you that from the time you place the order online, they will ship it out of their stores within 72 hours. They offer you a flat rate shipping of $7.99 for all of their online orders. When you go to checkout at modestdirect.com, don't forget to put in the promo code CRUCIAL21. It's going to save you 10% off your entire order. What is already affordable just became a little more affordable just because you took the time to listen to the Crucial Conversation podcast. So don't forget, whenever you go to that website, let them know the Crucial Conversation sent you. You can, in the meantime, you can check out what they have by following them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And again, go to their website, modestdirect.com, and use the promo code CRUCIAL21 to save 10%. They also offer a VIP email group. I would make sure to look forward to that because you don't want to miss what kind of new items they're coming out with. But I got a question for you. You just heard us talking about a business, and now you're curious. Well, how do I start my own business? What do I do? I have dreams of things I want to see happen, but I really don't know what my first step is. If that's you, I want to talk about God first living. Have you ever had a dream that you wanted to become a reality? And as you think about it, you're like, if I just had someone to help me in this process. That's exactly what God first living is. Corey Sanders is a successful businessman with over 20 years of experience, and he offers workshops and seminars to educate believers on how to take a passion and turn it into a blessing personally and eternally for the kingdom. Learn how to build a successful business and to be productive and powerful in your local assembly by living a balanced life. Corey Sanders will give you the practical tools backed with biblical principles that have allowed him to live in blessing. It's not just inspirational talk, but it's a testimony of a desire to be more in the kingdom and live in the overflow by building a thriving business and a fruitful ministry and a balanced life. For more information, go right now to GodFirstLiving at gmail.com. Also, I want to encourage you to live the movement. The Movement Conference is a conference that's being held at First Apostolic Church in Maryville, Tennessee. We encourage you to go to livethemovement.org so that way you can get registered for this monumental event. I've spoken with pastors that have told their staff members either you're going to this conference or you're no longer going to be serving in the position you're in. That's how important this conference is. There's a lineup of uh, just top-notch speakers. You're going to be encouraged. You don't want to miss it. So I encourage you again, go to livethemovement.org. Make sure you get registered as soon as possible, and we hope to see you at that conference. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm absolutely thrilled you're about to hear this conversation. This was an absolute blast, and 
I, I, I want to talk about it already, but you guys, I just want you to hear this conversation because this is going to lift you up. This is going to encourage you. And then I can't wait that this guest, her husband, eventually is going to be a guest on here. And I'm really looking forward to that as well. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I introduce you to Sister Paula Lejeune. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to The Crucial Conversation Podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we have one of the coolest, dynamic, well, half of this duo, one of my favorite conferences I've ever been a part of. Um, We have the better half of that duo with us tonight. (laughs) We have Paula Lejeune from Jennings, Louisiana. They pastor an awesome church. I watched some of y'all stuff on Facebook. It's pretty cool. Uh, With the Jesus Worship Center. Is that right? I got all my facts right. right. Yes. So you guys have an awesome, thriving church. You have the coolest husband that I've, I don't know. He's one of the coolest guys I've ever met. The coolest um, husband I've ever had. <laughs> coolest husband she's ever had. Yes. And he's, he's, he's the acronym king of uh, more than anything. He, he can give you an acronym for anything. But anyway, Sister Lejeune, thank you so much for spending time about these acronyms oh man they're awesome he's got one for everything for everything absolutely everything yes best better every single time anything you do you do you give it your best then best stands for better every single time see it's everything how about that everything like he he would when he was teaching our class i'll make this real brief when he's teaching our class he's like oh by the way that stands for oh by the way this stands for and he was just giving us a list of these acronyms but anyway pretty cool thing Anyway, thank you for taking the time to spend it with Brian and I tonight when you could be doing anything. Uh, we were thank texting you. this I'm week. Honored. Thank you. We were texting this week and you were talking about how, you know, you had this time slot and that time slot because you were teaching Bible studies and you were part of these different Bible studies a couple of times today. And yeah. we, we don't take it lightly that you would spend the rest of your evening with us two guys on the podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, of course, we're honored to have you. And I guess the best place to start is at the beginning. What's your story, Sister Lydia? Uh, for, to start really at the beginning, I was born a Siamese or conjoined twin, joined at the chin and neck. And my twin was born dead. Uh, we were born in the kinder clinic, which was not really a hospital. and. Uh, My mom was in distress. My twin had actually died in between the first and second trimester. So the deceased twin was poisoning my system as well as my mom's. And so when I was, when we were born, my mom was critical as was I, and the limited staff at this clinic had to make a decision who to save. And I had an 18 month old sister. So the doctor decided to save my mom because my sister needed a parent. So he put, and because I had so many uh, things wrong with me. So he put me to the side and they began to stabilize my mom. And once during that process, he had a nurse check my vital signs 
and she reported back that I was dead. So he knew he had made the right decision and he finished stabilizing my mom and came to me to do, a, I guess, a death certificate, but I had a heartbeat at that time. So I joke about God knows CPR because I came back to life on my own. And um, I was shipped to New Orleans to uh, a hospital there and, they began, you know, literally a team of doctors just trying to decide. I mean, this I'm I just turned 58. So this is before ultrasound. This is before, you know, they I was a surprise that they were not prepared. And so doctors just and I'm the first to survive join first Siamese twin to survive joined at the chin and neck. So they really were Ever? I'm the billion dollar woman. They just had to figure me out and take me apart and put me back together. Wow, that's awesome. So, so they so they didn't know that y'all were Siamese. Oh no. Before they didn't know my mom was pregnant for twins. Uh the only sign besides she was very sick, she had boils, like dozens of boils all over her body from the po blood poisoning. And uh so but I had like when they separated us, we shared because we were joined at the chin and neck, and I know they cannot see me. Uh, we shared things like uh, I have extra salivary glands. So uh, uh, it's I've had to work on that because it's the saliva I have extra. And uh, I had they couldn't figure out what was my tongue and what was her tongue. So I have both, which you know your tongue is a muscle. And so my tongue is, they sewed the two tongues together. And because of that, my parents were told I would not be able to talk because to learn to talk, you have to control a muscle. I have two joined together, but I never took speech therapy and learned how to talk with that. So I say I have to watch what I say twice as much as everybody else because I have to. <laughs> so when, when was it the just the muscles that were conjoined or were you conjoined at the bone as well? Um, well, the, okay. when they separated us, they trying, I, I got extra muscle because I have my twins muscle, but they had to remove bone. So my chin, that was all taken. So they, what my chin bone is actually a rib. And the first time they did the, uh, put the rib there to make me a chin, uh, it didn't take right and it actually fell out. And so I was rushed to the hospital. And so they took a rib from the other side. And so my, my they just had to estimate how big I would grow. And uh, so as I grew up, I had to have surgery after surgery. And uh, when I started school, those surgeries were done uh, during Christmas break or during the summer. So every time I got, I returned back to school, I would have fresh scars on my chin and neck that can't be hidden. And, uh, and we were also very poor. I'm sure a lot of it was the surgeries. And so, you know, it just, Kids can be cruel, not that I didn't have any friends, but I mean, it was just a rough, rough time for me, I guess, just uh, growing up with scars that I can't hide and 
and growing up poor. And my dad was a pastor and on and on. So I have just so many questions. Same here. <laughs> I feel like I could just rattle them all off. Oh, good. Uh, so so here, here's one that I'm interested to see, hear your response. Are you a medical miracle or are you a spiritual miracle? I would say both. <laughs> I'm both. Uh the spiritual miracle, of course, God intervening and letting me live. Uh, the medical miracle is everything the doctor said I couldn't do, I, I actually did. But the rest of my story is that I grew up in a pastor's home, but it was not a Christian home. And my dad was very abusive and verbally, mentally, uh, physically, and uh so the fact that it, it, it took your, your view of God comes from your father. So for me, God was very abusive. He was waiting to have a reason to punish us. Uh, I was never good enough. And I already had low self-esteem because of the way I look. But when you add to that, that it's not just uh, my father, but my, my father was my pastor. So there was no safe place for me growing up and my safe place was school if that makes any sense but just serving God and loving God he wasn't a lovable person to me for a long time I was married before that happened and it was just through the relationship of my husband which that is what the book I wrote is about it's a, a biography written in a fairy tale format about my childhood and when I, in the book, I say that my dad didn't like us because he wanted sons, but the, the reality was he was very abusive. He, he didn't like himself, I know now, but as a child, you just wonder what's wrong with me. And uh, when I was born, my, my parents had backslid. They were, my dad was raised in church, but he had backslidden. So when I was born, my parents were not in church but they got back in church when I was about three. And my dad would tell me that he believed I was the judgment of God for him because he was not in church. So add that to scars, being poor, being abused, and I am the judgment of God in his life. So there's the miracle of the spiritual miracle is that how God, how I found the love of God for myself because for for a lot of my life he wasn't someone who would love me i've got a couple of questions uh my first question is at what age did you know that you were different physically you know because for me i grew up poor as well i didn't know i was poor until probably what eight nine years old because people don't really understand you know, we, no. we just don't. I thought getting a bag of candy for Christmas was awesome. Little yeah. did I know that my friends were, you know, in today's society, we'd be like, I'd be getting a candy bar. He'd be getting an iPod, you know, and I, I was just thankful and grateful, you know, because I didn't know any different. But at what age did you know that you were different? Um, well, when I started school, I knew that the kids at school treated me different than I was treated at home which at home, my parents did treat me just like they treated my other sisters. I have four sisters. And uh, I mean, if we got in trouble, we all got in trouble. 
if you know whatever I was treated just like the rest of them there was no special favors but at school you know people would stare I would walk up to talk and they, they would look at me weird and so that uh, I don't know exactly I, I would think kindergarten first grade we changed schools when I was in the second grade and the school it was here in Jennings and they, without testing me, which I didn't figure this out for probably three years, uh, they, without testing me, they put me in the class with the slow learners. And I figured this out about in the fifth grade because they, I realized that second grade I was with these kids and then the third grade I was with a whole new group of kids and I was never with those kids that I was in second grade with. And that had to be I, so difficult. And then like within probably a month or two of that second grade, and I still remember this, the teacher put me at a table all by myself, but it was because she knew I did, you know, I was learning faster than the other children. And at that time they don't do this anymore, but you were, in class with the kids who had the same scores on tests, on standard tests that you did. And so they just looked at me and put me with a slow learning class. And so by the end of that year, they had to move me to the class with the more intelligent, I don't know how to say it, politically correct. I was very intelligent. I graduated one of the top of my class. So did my husband and both of my daughters. Oh, but, wow. uh, just your, I was judged based on what I looked like. And so I knew I was different, but I can remember at seven years old wondering what is wrong with me? I'm not only in this class, but I'm with, I'm at a table all by myself learning. She just put me to the side, but she also gave me extra work. She, she was doing the right thing, the teacher at that time. Mm -hmm. So my second question was, Growing up through those vital years, those 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, um, just those difficult years as kids, um, what did that do for your self-esteem? Uh, I just, I, I remember praying that I would wake up and be like everybody else. That was my prayer almost every night was I wanted to just be able to blend in and uh my our self-esteem not just mine my sisters as well because we were very poor people from the community would drop off trash bags of clothes and I remember getting up before school and just going through those bags trying to find something to wear and if I found something that halfway fit I would put it on not ironed now I am the ironing freak queen I iron for make sure everything's ironed before it goes in the closet but I made a lot of promises to myself during that time that I'm not going to live like this forever. Uh, I'm not going to live in this environment forever. I'm not going to live this, this way. I'm going to do well. That was where I committed that I was going to go to college. Um, I'm going to get an education because I realized neither one of my parents had that. And just, uh, a lot of things where I did have low self-esteem, but I made a whole lot of promises to myself that I was successful at accomplishing. 
so did you what would you say growing up did you even have even uh a, a place that you felt like a, a safe space where I know you had said that your your view of God was kind of messed up and then at home your your dad was abusive and then at school you were one of the poor kids was there a place that you went to that you could just feel like yourself and and feel like you were able to escape from everything um I did have an aunt and uncle that would I would go to their house for two weeks in the summer that's where I learned how how a house should be run uh watching them watching my aunt she taught us how to clean house and um I guess another safe place was in the hospital, which I spent a lot of time because there I was almost the celebrity and I could, uh, the focus was on me and I knew my dad wouldn't do anything in the hospital in front of anyone. So that was deaf. And also I remember, uh, you know, I've had surgeries till I was in my twenties, but that as a child, when you go into the pre-op room, you're by yourself because your parents can't go with you there. And I was fortunate enough, especially in those early teenage years to be in a, a hospital. It was a Catholic hospital, but in that pre-op room, they would have scriptures taped to the ceiling. And I remember reading those scriptures and just praying those scriptures over my life. And it was as weird as it sounds, it was a safe place. Now I've had over 30 surgeries, so maybe that'll help make more sense. It was something I did repeatedly and things that I saw and, and it was a safe place. So you uh, had mentioned that your view of God really didn't change until you met your husband. How did that come about? How did, how did you meet your husband and what has his, your, your union uh, meant to you and helped you in, in it recover from some of the things in your past that you struggled through growing up. I met him at church. Uh, we had mutual friends and they had invited him to church and he went home. He says, and he'll tell you that when he, when he met me, he went home and told his mom, he, he had met his wife, which he brides about this. I sound like a predator. He was 14. I was 19. And he was telling people we were going to get married. And I was like, okay, he doesn't have a driver's license. And I was fixing to start college. He was in high school. Oh, that is so and funny. he would tell me that he was going to marry me. And I was like, yeah, whatever. But uh, <laughs> he continued. He would tell everybody that he was going to marry me. It was like really weird. Even he was <laughs> But he would, he, we joke about it because girls would break up with him that he would date, but he would ask them if they knew me. And they were like, you were the only one he wanted to talk about. So then they wouldn't go out with him again. But he, he was a very good friend and he would pursue me and tell me how beautiful I was. And just, we weren't, we, we would date off and on as he got older, but whenever we were both in college, it was my last year, his first year, uh, we would see each other every day. And uh, so through our conversations on a daily basis, I realized that after years of only seeing my scars, 
whenever I was with him, he saw past them so well that I forgot about them. And I just remember that Trent, that first time when I was talking to my mom and I just realized that he was the person that made me forget that there was something wrong with me. And so our, our relationship did turn romantic from there on. And it, it was like a year or so later that we were actually married. But his love for me passed all that I thought was wrong with me, helped me believe that that what was wrong didn't have to be the end of my life. I could, I did have the ability to change or have a, a very good life. And like early on, just not in our relationship before that, just the, the, the desire to go to college and better myself, you know, when, when life would get bad at home, instead of wallowing in self-pity, which I am also an expert at, I would try to find something that I could work on that I could change, something that I could better. So, you know, learning to clean, learning to iron clothes, learning to just excelling in school without anyone pushing me, getting that college degree. That was all things that I could change in a world that of things filled with that I couldn't change. And then that gave me a little bit of self-confidence and then seeing myself through Clifton's eyes just uh, gave me a whole new confidence in myself. So you, you said the phrase self-pity, and there is a lot of people um, in our world that deal with self-pity. Um, and I'm just as guilty as, uh, as the next person of when I look at somebody who's in self-pity, um, I just kind of almost roll my eyes and I'm just like, come on, man, get over yourself. You know, you've got it made or whatever. At what point do you realize that, you know, this could be something more than just pity and you got to catch yourself from slipping into like a depression. And, you know, at what point you're like, okay, this has got to change in my life. Well, nothing changes as long as you're just wallowing in self-pity and, uh, nobody wants to be around you and things don't change by you feeling sorry for yourself. So I'm a very strong advocate for ditching the, the pity party, uh, figure out the parts because every, everybody has something in their life that they can get control of and go from there. Even if it's only changing a hairstyle, or changing the way you dress, there's something that you can change. If you're in an abusive relationship, get out of it. Find somewhere you can go. But uh, doing nothing and just feeling sorry for yourself is not going to accomplish anything. At the very minimum, go to God, which he is attracted by a contrite heart, but not a self-pity. He's not attracted to you feeling sorry for yourself. He's attractive when you feel sorry enough to change. And uh, I'm just not, I'm good at pity parties, but I've realized that they never got me anywhere except in a black hole where I felt helpless, helpless, hopeless. Yes, yes I get that. going to change. I get that completely. So you have written a book. Uh, I'm curious what, who, who is the target audience for the book that you've written? And uh, 
what is what all I know you've mentioned it before, but and before you go into it, I want you to tell what you are gonna name the book. And the your publisher's like, no, let me tell you why you don't need a name at that because that encouraged me. You, whenever you, when we were on the phone and you told me what you were gonna name it and you told me why you didn't name it that, for some reason, that gave me encouragement. Share that with us as well. Yeah, tell us a little bit about it. Okay, well, actually, the story was written in 2007. I was speaking to a group of teenagers, and I wrote the story called An Unfairy Tale, just about how unfair my life was. And then I, I go through the, the story is actually a biography of my life written in a fairy tale format. I think when I finished it, the, the target audience is about a six, it's written about a sixth grade level. But it's to give kids an idea of what it's like to grow up looking different. And so I named the book, I titled the book An Unfairy Tale and actually published it as an unfairy tale, just did a self-publish as an unfairy tale early in 2020. And when I met with a, a, a coach, a writing coach, that's who you referred to, she had read the book and she said, but your life did not end up unfair. Your life's not unfair. You have a great life. And so she asked me to give her ideas for different titles where people could see just because your life starts out unfair, or might be unfair at the moment, it can be changed or it's not over for you. So the new title is The Perfectly Imperfect Princess with the uh, underscore an unfairy tale gone right because you can change your life and it does just because you're born with scars or there's abuse in your childhood or uh whatever it is that you feel like is the scar of your life it doesn't have to define your future right yeah and so it's just been a fun journey you know, I think that's that's point. more than just I think that's more than just appearance. I think that our hurts and our um, spiritual scars and our um, our everyday life doesn't have to define what we can be and what, you know, we can overcome to be. And that's just so encouraging to me, you know, you know that, you know, you, you wrote this book, even though you've overcome and you're past all this, and you thought this name of the unfairy tale, that lady just looked at you and said, but it's, it's not unfair. Not you know, that's, that's such, that's such encouraging. And I, I want to ask you, what would you tell, say you have the perfect um, opportunity right now, say somebody right now is sitting down listening to this episode, and they're, and they're battling um, some self uh, what would be the word? Just self-worth. Yeah, self-worth. What would, you, what would you tell that person right now? Take a hard look and find one thing positive about your life. Because human nature, we focus on what's wrong. When I looked in the mirror, all I saw were scars. But I mean, I have, I have eyes. I have nose that's a decent size. Uh, I have one nose, not noses. Uh, but I mean, I have decent eyes. I have decent hair. Uh, a lot of times we focus only on what's wrong in our life and miss a wonderful life. Yes. If I would have stayed in self-pity, feeling sorry for myself, 
my choices would have reflected that self-pity. Yeah. But wanting to dig myself, focusing on the things like I, I keep going back to focus on what you can change. Uh, this is right about me. And if you get up every morning focused on what is right about you, eventually you those things right about you will affect the things that are wrong. I still have the same scars. They haven't gone anywhere. They're just not my focus anymore. That's awesome. You know, my wife and I, before we got married, our views were completely different on life. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm the one that pretty well uh, succumbed to the way she believes and the way she thinks because it's, it's right. You know, uh, for me, I'd rather have a nice house and a nice car and I want to have nice clothes and I want to do, uh, you know, go out to eat with my friends, eat that nice fancy steak. I want all those things. And my wife is, I would rather make those memories. I would rather go on that trip. I would rather go be with our loved ones. And, you know, with my dad's recent passing, uh, that just recently just changed my whole mentality of I'm not going to sit here and then be on my deathbed and think, wow, I wish I would have done that instead of look at that cool car I had. And, wow. you know, when you're saying when you're telling these people, you know, find that one good thing, find that one thing that just um, you can latch on to and hold on to is so That's encouraging. Good. For, for people that, you know, they feel like they are worthless and they feel like they have nothing more to offer. And, you know, that's that's just one of the biggest lies the enemy can tell you is, hey, you have no place for anywhere in the kingdom. Um, you know, it's 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 something that I've battled with. Me and Brian's talk, I know he's battled with that is, you know, where do I belong? You know, what do I do with my life? Is this even a ministry anymore? Is this something that I, I can even belong to or I can I can still give to you know just hold on to what God has given you I mean God doesn't make mistakes no and if you I mean nobody would come and look at my life and think that it was unfair now uh, we have a home uh, and I'm not talking about the physical structure although it is very beautiful but just the, the relationship between my husband and I with between our girls, uh, we have two daughters who were both grown, married. We have our first grandson, but our relationship is just a, a relationship between adult Christians that I never saw growing up. It's a very healthy relationship. My daughter and son-in-law just bought the home right behind us, uh, last December. And, uh, I love, we all get together one, at least once a week for uh, our tradition since the girls were little is Saturday morning breakfast, and which I thought would fizzle out once they got married, but they, the, my sons-in-law look forward to it just as much as my girls do. So it's our tradition on a weekly basis, but God has shown, given us principles to be able to enjoy giving me principles to be able to enjoy a life that I only dreamed of when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. um, so, so was it the, the struggles that made you help make you strong today? Absolutely. I believe that the strong person that I am today is a result of the adversity from when I was born and having to go through so much by myself 
uh, you know, things that were put on me by my parents or, you know, by the conditions of my birth that I just had to face all alone. Uh, it just gave me a strength to overcome the what would have been easy to succumb to the the self-pity and the, you know what, nobody's going to expect any more out of you because look at you. You don't look like the rest of society. You don't fit in with just anybody. And uh, it just, it, it put a fight in me to, to be better. Uh, you know, I don't have to be the best. I just have to be my best. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Uh, so um, we, we've talked a lot about self-esteem and, and I know that we've, we've asked you to, to, to speak to people um, that, that kind of struggle with their self-worth. And, and we were talking off air a little bit about another project you were wanting to do. Um, on the topic of self-esteem, is there anything else that you would say to uh, a person that's out there that's, that's really struggling with the question of why, why me? Why am I the one? that's here. And like Tony said, that's still kind of struggling in their, their self-pity. And do you, do you encourage them to seek um, counseling? Do you, would you encourage them just to pray? And is it a good thing to ask why me? Yeah. And yeah, that's a great question. I would think uh, maybe it's healthy to ask why, uh, why me not why why was I born like this? I have four sisters. Why weren't they born? You know, mm-hmm. with uh I I don't know that you're gonna get the answers. I do think it's healthy to seek counseling if you're not getting you should be talking to God, but if you're still struggling, I would definitely seek counseling. I've actually gone to counseling not when I was a child, I couldn't pay for it then. Uh, I've been to counseling as an adult after both my parents passed away and I was dealing with a lot of the issues that were never taken care of in my childhood. And I didn't get all my questions answered, but I got a healthier view of myself through going to counseling. And uh, because you do, if, if you're, if you're, you have abusive parents, you do think there's something wrong with you that there must be a reason that I'm treated this way. Uh, I wrote, uh, I think it's been a couple of weeks ago. I just was, people had been pushing me to promote my book, which I'm terrible at promoting myself. Don't worry, we'll do it. (laughs) I have better self-esteem. I'm just still terrible at promoting myself. And so I put in that uh, promotion thing that, my a phrase that has always stuck out, it stuck with me growing up was my dad would always tell us we were never going to amount to a hill of beans. And I was like, I don't know the value of a hill of beans. I don't think it was a compliment. But, you know, you just grow up. If you have someone in your life that's telling you negative things, that's what is replayed in your head. So to get out of that self-pity or that pity party you have to replace that voice because actually my dad said that when I was a child repeatedly but I said it more as an adult I replayed it over and over so to change my self-esteem I'm the voice that I hear the most 
So I had to put a new tape going in my head. I had to replace my dad's lies with the word of God. And he made me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made as a Siamese twin with scars, with everything. I am, I'm his creation and he thinks I'm beautiful, even if no one else does. So I had to replace those words, which that's just one of several. And when I say my dad was abusive, I know the difference between spankings and beatings. Uh, I, I was probably 24 years old and my dad punched me and knocked me to the ground because I was helping him look for something he had lost. And he said, I was looking in the same place twice. That's abuse. Um, my dad would leave because he would get angry with us. And, and my dad was a pastor, but our church had no idea this was going on. It was just not talked about then. Uh, he would leave and say he was going to kill himself and stayed on for hours and then call us and let us hear the click of the gun and make us beg him to come back home. Well, eventually you just get hardened and you know, I don't kill yourself. We'll come find you eventually when we, you know, get around to it. You just build up a hardness in your heart. And God had to get through all those layers uh, to get to me. But I had to start. It took as an adult reading the word of God, see, just like seeing myself through my husband's eyes. I had to learn to see myself through God's eyes. And that comes through time with him and reading his word. And a good Christian counselor doesn't hurt at all either. Hurt at all either. Something's cutting out. Hang on. Oh, how about that? Can you hear okay. us now? Yes. Because the last time you used it, you used it. <laughs> my wife's my wife's in here with the the podcast with us, and she plugged in her AirPods. No, and it, I use these and today at lunch, over. so they're connected to my phone. <laughs> so it memorized my know, iPad. And so to all of our listeners out there, I apologize. It was a skip. Yeah, we'll get that. It, it's her fault. But uh, on a serious <laughs> note, um, so when you were a kid and you would hear your dad preach about mercy and forgiveness, and then you knew his other life. What, what, how did you react to that? How did you and your sisters react to that? Um, I don't know how they react. I, I began just tuning him out because mm. I knew he wasn't living up to what he was preaching. And so I would zone out. And when I got married and my husband became the pastor, I realized how easily I tuned the preachers out. And so I began taking notes in church just to make myself listen. And because of that, now both my daughters grew up taking notes in church. They thought that was normal. I was just doing it to make myself listen. But you just, you when seeing the duplicity in uh, what was being preached and what was actually being lived, uh, my, I don't know if it's my motto, but I believe that if you have the spirit of God, you should have the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit should first be served at home. It should be the people closest to you that get to experience the fruit of the spirit before the people outside of your home. And it, it's just, it was, it brought in me a desire 
to know God and to live for God out loud. In fact, uh, because of the duplicitous life, I, I tell people all the time, if you want to know about me, don't ask about the people in our church. You ask my girls, ask my kids, and you can ask them without me being there. Uh, we've even done a marriage seminar where at the end, we put our girls up on the platform and just let the audience ask questions. And we told them, you answer honestly. Wow. Because that was something I could not have done as a teenager or as a, even as an adult with my parents in the audience. I would have, I mean, I would have just, you know, really given my parents up for this scam or uh, had to lie. And so having to live a duplicitous life, I am over that. I'm very open. The front part of our house doesn't even have curtains. If you want to know who we are, you can stand at the front and just watch inside. <laughs> that's that's pretty bold right there. That is pretty bold. Um, were, were you uh, were you did you ever have the opportunity to reconcile or like forgive your dad? Um, I, I, it, I, don't, I don't know if he's actually if he's st still alive or anything. But I'm just wondering if you ever had a, a moment of closure uh, with him. It, that did not come till after he died. Uh, I did, at, my dad had cancer before he died. He actually survived cancer and died because of the weakness of his heart after he survived, just the chemo destroyed it. But um, I would, when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, I began calling him or going to see him uh, when he would first start his treatments because he would have it's just a weird thing. He would have a week of treatments and he was doing well. And so I would go at the beginning before he started getting sick. And uh, those visits were okay. They were not comfortable for me. And so when I decided not to go anymore, I began calling him once a week and he started hanging up on me or being ugly on the phone. And I knew I mean, I kept forgiving, but uh, it was new. It was another offense. And so I knew I couldn't handle the abuse that way anymore. So I, but I felt like I still had to do what I could. So every week after, until he died, I would send him a card because I, I didn't want him to die where I didn't feel like I had done everything possible. And then after his death, that's where, when I went to a counselor and I sat across from an empty chair and I forgave my dad for specific hurts and specific things that he had done and that that, that load was lifted. But I do feel like that I did all I could mm -hmm. to form a relationship, but it, it was turned down repeatedly on his side. So in turn from the way that you were raised in a abusive household whenever you got married to your husband and um, you guys were talking about starting a family what's one thing that you were like look this is how I was raised and I, I this is how we're going to do it different right uh two principles that we we mar uh, made whenever we got married that have gone through because I sincerely prayed and asked God to show me how to have a different family. Uh, one thing, when there's an issue that comes up, we have a family meeting 
And like I said, it started when we first got married, but it evolved into our kids. And at family meetings, everybody gets a voice. Nobody raises their voice. And it doesn't matter what your view is, you get to be heard. And so it was, that's how we've lived. We don't, there's not hollering, screaming, fighting. We definitely don't pull out guns or anything, but it's, we, I learned, I had to learn as an adult, how to argue as an adult and teach my girls how to overcome uh, just obstacles in life through talking it out. And so what's funny, and my oldest daughter is a teacher and my youngest daughter is a nurse and they are quick. If there's disunity in their job or whatever, they want to have a family meeting with their coworkers. And they didn't realize till I was talking about it at church one time, they were like, that's where we got that from. That's how we were raised. So we worked out problems. We had plenty of problems in our family over that. We've been married now over 32 years. We've had Y'all probably was having a hard time watching that presidential debate last year then. Oh, we can't. <laughs> uh, yeah, we can't. Yeah. Yeah, that, that definitely wasn't a that, that wasn't was a not family a family meeting, meeting moment. Uh, not that first <laughs> no, sure. no, no. I was over here just thinking we can't even play Monopoly in our house. No, we can't. We got yelling, board flying, oh, everything. Yeah, that's, that's uh, well, <laughs> yeah, no that's case. a pretty intense name here, too. My my oldest son-in-law is a CPA, and he wins every time. Oh, and everybody's man. broke except for him, and it's still the way he is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just told I'm a cheater. It doesn't matter what I'm playing. Yeah, well, yeah. we accuse him of that, too. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so... um what, what do you guys do as a family to uh, what did you guys do uh, with, keep, with your kids growing up to uh, to, to make the home fun, uh, to, uh, to make it a, a paradise, a, a place where people want to come? You know, my house growing up was my dad would wake me up on Fridays before he'd go to work. And before I went to school and said, hey, is your boy still coming to stay the night? I had five or six guys always at our house because it was the house. You know, uh-huh. we had the basement, the pool table. You know, the whole nine yards. And, you know, what did you do, like Brian said, to make your house a home, not a house? Well, we definitely had the the house where everybody wanted to hang out. Uh, we put a pool in when the girls were younger. We just figured out how to pay for it. It was an investment uh, because we're in South Louisiana during the middle of the summer. If you don't have a pool, you're inside all day. And... Uh, uh, we are very intentional about family dinners. This When they lived with us, uh, we had a set time and fam- supper was a time that we all gathered on a daily basis where we just all talked about our day. Everybody put their phones up. We did that through their teenage years until they got married. And my girls still follow that tradition. We do well, try that's a to lost have- art nowadays. Yeah, just having that family dinner once a day just took care of a whole lot of issues, uh, you know, that that I didn't have, we didn't have to send our kids to counseling for because we were handling it right there at the table and they were able to unload. Uh, definitely vacations, you have to have vacations. And especially because we pastor a church 
we try to go away out of the country, uh, be cell phone free so that our kids can have our undivided attention. Uh, our vacations, when they were younger, we would bring other, go with other families that had young kids because that's what our kids wanted. But as they got older, when they started asking, you know, mom and dad, we really want y'all to ourselves. So that, that's like our gift to them. A lot of vacations, the, the good part is they're not sharing us with anyone else. And I'm grateful that as adults, that's what they want. They want us to themselves. So you and your husband travel a lot doing marriage seminars. Is it exhausting or is it a way actually that you guys kind of renew your strength going and ministering to, to other couples? It's not exhausting. It's definitely renews our strength. And uh, we did not even realize that that was a calling. We started doing marriage seminars for, for our church because there were so many marriage issues when we became pastor. And on that note, we pastor the church that my dad pastored. And when oh. we became pastor, that's a whole other story. My dad was trying to cover up an affair and was going to slip us in for a few months and then take over again. But we were not aware of all that. And after we became oh, pastor, that Man, I like how we found this out at the end of the interview. Now there's so <laughs> I'm many. I'm so questions. sorry. Now there's so much that we need to know. Oh, my word. So, hey, but uh, we, we, when we became pastor, my dad's church was about 120. And we joke about we got it up to 50. But there was, a whole, <laughs> because my, my parents were immoral, there was a lot of immorality in our church that we weren't aware of. And so those people left and we literally started over. But there were so many issues in our church that we started doing, just trying to help these couples. And uh, that grew to where people were asking us to come and speak. And so a lot of those marriage seminars helped me to figure out what was going on with me because uh, I was at, at the beginning of my marriage and I hate you're finding this out at the end of the interview. <laughs> I was when, when all those low self-esteem and that pity party would, would just overwhelm me. I would try to, I was expecting my husband to pay for the sins of my dad, if that makes sense. Like he, uh, I was angry with my dad, but I took it out on my husband. I get that. I and get it that. Was through these marriage seminars that I, I was trying to figure out how I changed, where the change occurred, what I had figured out. So we don't do marriage seminars, like read a book and tell you what the book says, although that is how I started. But reading those books to regurgitate them helped me find me and helped me change the way I thought. Until now, our marriage seminars are, okay, this is how I used to think. This is how I changed. And if I can change, you can change. And so it's, our story is a story of hope. Yes. What would you say is one of the biggest struggles that you see in people's marriages whenever you sit down and talk with them in, in today's society? Communication. People don't know how to talk to each other. Uh, it's it, it either blows up into a, 
you know, a knockdown drag out over because you can't come to an agreement. You don't know how to fight like an adult. Uh, you don't know how to express your feelings without getting over emotional. Uh, yeah. A lot of, and I, I'm not, it's not more men or more women, but if an, a, an argument rises, if anger is present, then rational thought just goes out the window a lot of times. So it's just people don't know how to communicate. And yeah, I definitely for, for me, I, my wife, I don't know how to listen. And that's the, you know, that's kind of hard, you know, to, for people to understand is, you know, there a lot of things are being said when they're not being said. Right. And, you know, that's, and that's a hard thing because my wife is, we are night and day different. You know, she's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. Uh, she, she would be happy if uh, it was just me, her and Olivia. And uh, yeah, you know, this, my, my wife was built for quarantine. I mean, it didn't affect her. She was ready for 2020, you know, that was her thing, you know, uh-huh. but um, it's, it's uh, communication is so true. I mean, because I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to listen. And I know, you know, I heard a, a preacher one time say that, uh, you know, men are just so direct to the point. And then women are almost like spaghetti, you know, all intertwined. And, uh, you know, the feelings are going all it different directions. And, yeah. And, you know, I, I'd be sitting in a, in a chair and my wife bring up something from three weeks ago that I thought was done. Little did I know it wasn't, you know. Huh. Oh, no. <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. Communication, that's a killer. It is right because I learned how to communicate through my parents and their communication is if, if there's an argument, then it's a hollering, screaming. I've seen them pull guns on each other uh, or they would leave, you know, one or both would leave and we wouldn't know where they were going when they were coming back. So I am, that was the behavior I duplicated when we first got married, not pulling the gun. I didn't have a gun. I have yeah. one now. But uh, is it in your purse? Just, not yet. I'm waiting on, but it is in my car. There uh, it is. Yeah, I have filed for a concealed carry. I just haven't gotten the permit, but I would carry it in my purse. There it is. Uh, it's just kind of so, it. I, I applaud you. <laughs> How big is it? <laughs> it's a revolver because I don't oh. want to think about. Having to take off a safety or it's a <laughs> double action revolver. There and I'm a good shot. You can tell we're talking to a Southern gal tonight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, along with Brian, I, I want to speak for him. We both applaud you for breaking that, that routine of this is how I was taught and this is how my kids are going to be taught. You know, so many times people want to talk about generational curses. I, 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 I don't believe in generational curses like that. I think we all have our own power and our own ability to change um, through the power of God. You know, we all have that ability. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. There are things that we all battle through our generations, but don't come at me and saying, well, I can't change this because this is how I was taught. Right. You know? And I just taught on this at our church and actually did a marriage seminar on it. If you want to be a cycle breaker, you have to stop fixing that broken cycle. And you do that by stop normalizing poor behavior. Because when I was growing up, you know, my dad would do whatever. If he would lash out, beat us, 
whatever, then he would go cool off and come back and we had to pretend it never happened. That was normalizing bad behavior. So when I hollered or screamed or overreacted in an instance with my girls or with my husband, then we would meet and I would, I would apologize and say, you know what, I had a right to get mad, but I way blew it out of proportion. And in doing that repeatedly, I stopped normalizing that behavior and that cycle was broken. My kids don't blow up. I've never heard them scream, holler at each other, walk out, run out, whatever. They don't fight like my sisters and I did growing up. They don't fight like my parents. They both have very good, stable marriages. Uh, they, Our church is a wonderful church, but the the fruit of our changes and my changes, my husband, our marriage is our kids. That is, they are the trophies of what has come out of breaking a cycle. Yes. Uh, of getting self-esteem, uh, just deciding to be a better person. Mm-hmm. They are those trophies. You know, I was telling Brian that I forget where we were. You know, if you ever ride in a car with me and Brian, you have no idea which one you're going to get. Sometimes we're laughing. Sometimes we're crying. Sometimes we're mad. Sometimes we're ready to kill each other. And sometimes we just enjoy each other's company. But I was telling him the other day in the car, I was saying, man, you know, because I have a child and they don't, they don't have children yet, but I was telling him, you know, I didn't realize what love was until I saw my daughter for the first time. Right. I mean, I thought I knew what love was with my companion, you know, and, you know, there'll never be someone that could take the place of your companion. You can try, but that'll never happen. You know, everybody always thinks the grass is greener. You know, it's everybody's always chasing happiness. You know, when you're living in your happiness, you don't realize you take that for granted. But that's another conversation. But when you see your child for that first time and you realize this is part of me, this is part of her. This is this is what we we we've done life for right here. And that's a huge responsibility. You know, when you think of the whole realm of, of the aspect is it's a huge responsibility because I have the biggest role in her life, along with Meredith, my wife. She has a huge role of molding that person. And it's up to us, really, who she is from this very early age. And, you know, I applaud you, like I said earlier, for for breaking that cycle. Thank you. Thank you. It took so a how can work. how can our listeners find your book? Is it out yet? Yes, it is on Amazon. It's the Perfectly Imperfect Princess. Uh, it's $14.99 for the paperback. Uh, we are in process of getting it uploaded for a hardback. We just haven't finished that process yet. So what me and Brian's going to do for our listeners, and I've already talked to you about this uh, off air. Um, we want to give away one of these books to someone who's listening right now. Um, we'll, we'll figure out how we're going to do this, Brian. But um, listening to your story, especially after hearing the whole story, other than just talking to you on the phone, I really feel like it's going to bless somebody, Brian. And uh, if you would be willing to, we didn't talk about this off the air, but if you could write something in that, something encouraging, um, I don't know if you have any at your house that I can purchase or how would yeah, you do that? I do. Uh, but I would love to get where you could write an encouraging word, but we want to for sure give one of these copies out. Um, and I actually have someone in mind I'd like to give it to. Um, but 
we we can't thank you enough for being Brian. Brian put you put him put us on mute a while ago, and he looked at me and said, "Man, this is a good episode. She's very open. We can't thank you enough for your transparency tonight." Well, thank you guys. It's just it's an easier way to live. <laughs> yeah, actually, a healthy way to live. Yeah. I don't have to go back and think about what I said or did that I need to cover up. Absolutely, man. This is this has been an episode. Yeah, that's a way of living peace. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like people are like, well, all the time, I don't know how they do it. Yeah. Cause you got to keep up with, with too much stuff, Absolutely. <laughs> you know? And so uh, I just want to ask you here at the end, um, if you just want to speak from the heart to our listeners, I'll get, we'll give you the final word and then uh, we will talk again another time. Um, if you're listening today and you are just, you feel like all hope is lost. I promise that there is something good in your life that if you'll focus on and and find a scripture, it's too easy to find scriptures that deal, you have no excuse. It's too easy to find scriptures that will minister to you. And you speak the word of God over your life on a daily basis. The word works. I am living proof that the word works. And God will, the Bible says, if you ask for wisdom, he will give it liberally. And if you believe that and act on it, God will give you the direction that you need. And it may be direction to a counselor, but he will give you that desire, whatever you're seeking after. And you can pull yourself with God's help out of the mess that you're in. Absolutely. We sang this song um, on Easter. I want to end with this unless you got anything else. But we ended or we, we sang this song on Easter. Uh, that said um, that God never failed me, and, you know, and it's the story that when I get to heaven, that's the story I'm going to tell. And, you know, I, I tell this way too much, but I, I just can't help it. I, I texted our, our pastor's wife, which, you know, Sister Runyon, uh-huh. I texted I texted her and I said, you know, that that song really ministers to me because I went through so much um, in 2020. I went through so much ups and downs, you know. Uh, with with my uh, a business that I own, uh, with the passing of my father, with um, you know all these different things, not knowing what what was going to happen in my life, and you know I, I remember one of my mentors telling me you know this this isn't the end, um, and even with your story, God didn't fail you, God didn't fa- fail you, Brian. He didn't fail me, and we all have a story but all the stories are going to come to the final ending that God never failed any of us. Right. You know, this, awesome. this, this, this has been a very crucial conversation. Thank you. Thank you guys. You both are Thank easy you. to talk to. Uh, <laughs> awesome. easy. <laughs> Perfect. We try to be professional. We have, sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. it. Yeah. I love like it. when I said she would get the final word, you got the final oh, word after man. all. Oh man. Oh, I didn't mean to. Yeah, jokes on both y'all because I'm about to get the final word. This has been the crucial conversation. Oh. <laughs>